Welcome to the Republican Professor. We have with us today, Dr. John Ferrer. Thanks for being here, John. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. John, I've never met you before besides on the phone, and here we are talking, so it's nice to put a face to a name. And you likewise. Are those CDs, or the what are those behind you? Are those CDs, books? Uh, DVDs, Blu-ray. Uh, you might not be able to see. I've, I've got a record collection down yeah, here. Yeah, I could see um, a record player. Cool. Yeah. The other, the other wall... Uh, it's supposed to look more academic with um, <laughs> books, but it doesn't stage as well for the camera. So we we turned it about 90 degrees and and uh, figured this would look more impressive and get people thinking and interested. Yeah, well, it does actually kind of look like books, but it just shows that you are a man who's in touch with the world. And so you're re you're ready to minister in a seasoned uh, with a seasoning and salt because you know where people are so well, i'm John, a big fan of music myself so i like you're to, what I, i'm a big music fan myself i'm i tend to relate and interact with a lot in the world through music and I so see a guitar yeah i i tell people i'm i'm not a particularly talented musician but um i can analogize most anything with either food sports or music wow and that that helps me kind of interact with the world is some good analogies like that. So music helps. And you don't do that like in a fake way. That's just how you are. It's not like you're doing it as a ministry shtick or something. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm more or less a loose combination of food, music, and sports. Just me. That's the, that's me in three pieces. What kind of music do you like? Um, it's somewhat eclectic. I've been, um, this, Earlier today, I was I was listening to uh, Eric Clapton Unplugged album. Apparently, there's this deluxe edition that has has songs on it that I didn't know he performed in the Unplugged uh, in that really? famed Unplugged concert. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I was I was geeking out on that earlier today. Hmm. But um, I I've got a, a wide range. So uh, probably the most common thing I go to is stuff that's good for studying. So with no lyrics, just because I happen to be reading, but yeah. when not reading, I'll, I like a, a lot of um, a lot of folk, neo folk type of stuff. Okay, yeah, uh -huh. I'm the same way. I don't like words when I'm trying to read because I can't mm -hmm. get distracted. Um, yeah. So when when you have when you say you have a record collection, are these new records you buy? Like you know how they have new ones now, or are these like the yeah. legit old ones? Yes. And yes. Okay. I, I stumbled across a, um, I had a great yard sale find where a guy was just kind of clearing houses, getting rid of, of a whole bunch of stuff because he was going to take a long trip with his family to some new job. And there was this big blue uh, container that had a lot of records in it. And I was like, oh, cool records. I'm flipping through it. And, and he said, I'll give you the whole bunch for 20 bucks. So I picked up like, 50 classic rock albums and uh maybe 20 different cds that were also in, in there for 20 bucks and that was such a find for me before that i had just a handful that i picked up at thrift stores and i was playing them on my dinky little um um uh, a, a new record player but 
this that put me in another level of of uh music excitement so i've been geeking out on records ever since and yeah probably my my uh favorite right now is um a um a robert plant album he's he's got this this new uh kind of a folksy uh vocalist piece that that he's put out recently huh good yeah I don't know names, so I'm I'm a total That's idiot, a, man. I'm I'm sorry. I, I, Ze, okay, I yeah, I've recognized the name. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Is he still yeah. alive? Yeah, he's still alive. He's still bringing it out. Yeah. Gosh. Well, uh, let me just share a story here, so you know just how dumb I am with names. Okay. Um. <laughs> okay. Which one do I share? I have multiple. Uh. Well. Yeah, it's getting a little bit off. I'll just, I'll just share it real quick. So okay. I had the I I was teaching at this place called Loyola Marymount at the time. Oh yeah, I know Loyola in, in L.A. You know L.A. I know of Loyola Marymount. Yeah. Okay. So this was uh, back in the back a while ago, and um, I had this student Ben. His name was Ben, and. Uh, after class, a bunch of students came to my office hours, including this kid, Ben. And afterward, the Ben lingered behind that, that day, I think I had been using some, some movies and stuff in class just to illustrate the concept of personal identity and, and, mm -hmm. and the soul and stuff like that, yeah. like personhood, yeah. whether we're identical to our bodies, it's kind of broad. It was an undergrad class, lower level philosophy yeah. of human nature is called and i was using um some films like finding nemo and mm -hmm. and uh toy story yeah and uh i think those are interesting films to use because uh it, it looks like these toys are people and it looks like they don't have human bodies and so yeah um, they don't have what what is it that makes it a person kind of thing and and yeah. same with nemo fish mm -hmm. So this kid, Ben lingered. Uh, and I said, Ben, what do you, what do you want to do for, for your life? And he says, Oh, I think I want to go into film. And I said, Oh, really cool. And I said, uh, what's the inspiration for that? And he said, probably my dad. I said, Oh, cool. Um, his name was Ben Lassiter. This, this is his kid's name. <laughs> and I said, well, what, uh, what, what does your dad do? Is he, does he work in, in the films? And he said, he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, is there anything I would know? Is it like B level stuff or is it like kind of low grade weird stuff? And he said, Oh no, no, finding Nemo toy story. He started listing these films that I was I said, Oh, so what did he do on the films? Did he, was he like a janitor or something? <laughs> I didn't know. He, he, and he was like, no, writer writer director producer <laughs> so i was like really i i just totally don't know any names yeah so turned out the kid sitting there in my office hours was the inspiration for andy in toy story oh my goodness wow <laughs> which i didn't know at the time i was like toy just story talking was to just him 
that was a revolutionary movie too. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know that folks watching you know Toy Story twelve or whatever they're on now r- really appreciate just how much that kind of surfaced this the the kid inside of all these adults they took oh yeah children's they they took children's stories and yeah. made it so that adults can't stay away from it yeah anyway yeah. i guess he told his parents that story and they sent me a bottle of wine for christmas that year that year <laughs> that was pretty funny yeah I, I mean i wouldn't believe it myself if i didn't see it myself right right in front of my face um yeah but um I have another story I'll, I'll share really quick. It's just kind of same school at Loyola Marymount years later, a while later, like almost a decade later, mm-hmm. I had, I used to do this thing where I would have the, the, to bring the quizzes up, I would start doing quizzes right away. And then I would mm-hmm. take roll and have them bring it up in alphabetical order so that the quizzes were in alphabetical order. And, and I learned oh, okay. their names that way, kind of yeah. like the military kind of. So, I would do these little comments uh, to learn their names, just stupid little jokes. Like this one kid, his name is John Neville. I said, any relation to Neville Chamberlain? And he, and he would be like, who's Neville Chamberlain? And I'm like, oh. mm-hmm. You know, this one, like this one girl was named uh, Whitney. And I said, any relation to Whitney Houston? And she goes, no, <laughs> but for <laughs> me, I remember that. So there's this yeah, kid, yeah. I get to the J's and as kid, uh, last name Jackson, first name Michael, and he's this white kid, and uh, he's wearing camo, and he looks like he's from Texas and like guns, and and I was like, all right, wa- moonwalk that quiz up to me, buddy, you know, and and I was just thinking, this poor kid, whatever Jackson family out there, they they have this kid and they name him Michael of all things, you know, and I'm like, I'm telling the, I'm telling the these jokes like, Hey, where's your shiny glove, you know, and stuff like that, you know, yeah. each time just an innocuous little joke. Well, yeah. um, halfway through the semester, uh, <laughs> one of the uh, students in the class said, you, you know, that that's Michael Jackson's son, right? <laughs> oh. And so, <laughs> and this is 2016 and and um a lot of stuff going on in 2016 most of it has nothing yeah. to do with michael jackson who was the most yeah. famous guy in the world when i was a kid probably besides yeah. ronald reagan and margaret thatcher uh, but i to me i i just thought these kids don't even know who michael jackson is you know because the pepsi commercials and all, you yeah. know i the half the jokes i did i don't think they even understood like i like i asked this kid i said now do you know anybody named Billy Jean or is that, is that just a, um, anyway, is that your mom? Well, uh, anyway, uh, they didn't get it. They didn't get the joke. I, I think the kid did. Yeah. That, but I later figured out he, he got all of them and he yeah. actually quite, he was, he was actually kind of happy about it. But yeah. anyway, I, 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 I just, the running joke was that no everybody knew that i didn't know yeah and so uh i just was like the total almost like a boomer not even a i was just like a totally out to lunch professor the inspiration of anything boomer meme yeah yeah and i'm not even a boomer which is funny um and so uh 
yeah and and he he would track me down in later semesters and come see me in office hours and talk about talk stuff yeah cool. he was he didn't he wasn't upset about it all he was quite an interesting little kid kid well he was not little kid but quite an interesting guy so yeah. um he didn't hold any grudges and i um water off a duck's back good fortunately my my jokes were just innocuous dumb yeah. innocent jokes but but um, yeah, so that gives you an idea when I'm talking about popular culture, man, I, I if you say Robert Plant, I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what, what you're talking about. Well, if you're going to be much good at your job, you need to have your nose in a book yeah. uh, many, hours, many, so. many hours. And that's time you're not spending uh, on TikTok or right. whatever. I do enjoy movies, though. I really do. I really enjoy good films. They're the novels of the modern era. Yeah, they are. Um, John, your um, your wife is kind of famous now. She's got a cool book, cool ministry. She's and cute too. <laughs> she's been on Hillary and uh, Mama Bear Apologetics. Woohoo! Give that yep. a shout out. Go check it out. But um, mm -hmm. you are quite highly educated yourself right you have a phd yes i um i did a masters of divinity and apologetics at southern evangelical seminary got to study under folks like norm geisler and mm -hmm. and um just some different luminaries in oh, yeah. in the apology world out there yeah, he's, he's then big time went to South, oh yeah then went to southwestern seminary in fort worth there i met hillary and got married and i say met we that was the reason we moved there is we wanted to be in the same city to to try out this engagement thing and see if we're compatible and i was going to seminary at the same time and did a, a master's of theology and a phd um, in philosophy of religion minoring and ethics um from that was from about 2006 to 2014 yeah Wow, 2006. So that was including the MDiv at Southern. Um, so Southern Evangelical, that was at, that was, oh two to oh six. Oh, yeah. okay. So 2006 to 2014, that was just the PhD. Uh, PhD and THM. Oh, yeah. the THM. Gotcha. So that... Wow. Did you know um, yeah. somebody named, no. well, no, you wouldn't um, have known him. Who was there that you studied philosophy with at Southwestern? Anybody? Southwestern? Gosh, it, it's weird because during my time there, they were, they were revamping the department. They were dumping a lot of the professors that I studied under. Oh, um, okay. Even, even my advisor um, he came down with lung cancer like a year into into my uh, time with him, oh. and you know he managed to to fight through and and hold on till I finished my PhD. But like six months later, he passed away, and I think that's the main reason they didn't uh, oh. fire him or move him somewhere else is because <laughs> I mean you don't want to be the one who who fires the cancer patient. I mean you're you're just a villain if you do that mm -hmm. um what well, they didn't like the program or they didn't like him 
Well, it, it was probably administrative, um, school direction, visionary type of things going on at the time, because their prior uh, president, uh, Paige Patterson, um, he, he kind of represent, he's bigger than a person, so to speak. He, he represents a, a lot of, of the conservative restoration of the, of the uh, seminary world at the time. Was this at Southwestern? And, did you say Southwest, okay. Southwest Fort Worth? Uh, yeah. in Fort Worth, Texas. Yeah. And, um, he didn't, to my knowledge and from personal interaction with him, he didn't have any real vision for apologetics. And so that aspect of ethics and philosophy wasn't terribly interesting to him. He saw everything as subordinate to, um, evangelizing the lost and developing a stronger pulpit. So better preaching. Those seem to be the two strengths that he had that he thought the church should all have, and that should be everyone's focus. And, you know, my background and my experience, I'm kind of a, an atheist magnet. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I end up talking with all these people that were burnt over by hyper-fundamentalists mm -hmm. who, who kept everything on the bottom shelf mm -hmm. and oversimplified and treated all questions like you shouldn't doubt. Doubt makes baby Jesus cry. And those kinds <laughs> of thinkers... I would I would end up with them trying to converse with them saying, you know, that's not all Christians are like that. Not all the churches like that. Um, we actually have a very rich intellectual history. But as far as they know, we don't because they, right. they've never seen. It. And so wow. without going into too much there, they've changed presidents since then. And I really can't speak for what the culture is like at Southwestern now. Okay. That was I was last there in 2014. So that was what six, seven, eight years ago. Yeah, and a lot yeah. can happen in that time in a, in a sure. seminary. What is it like doing? Uh, I mean, I think me, if people don't know what an MDiv is, it's a Master of Divinity, and it's for designed for basically someone who wants to be a minister full time, yeah. right? And yeah. like on a church staff. Yes. And then, so that's like a professional degree, kind of like a JD is at law school or an MD. Um, mm -hmm. The THM and and beyond, maybe that's less familiar with pe to people. I know what a THM is, but what okay. what was it like getting a THM? So um, to, to kind of frame this, when I started at Southern Evangelical Seminary in 02, it was 02, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, I thought I was going to go into full-time local church ministry, like some pastorate position. That was my, my belief. I knew I was interested in apologetics and intellectual stuff, uh, but I had felt a ministry calling in my life, and I thought that was where I was going to go. And I, I trusted that God had a way that all this would dovetail just fine. So I wasn't worried about, oh, well, are you going into school? Or are you going into church? Which is it? I, I figured just be faithful with what you do know, and it'll, it'll work out. Mm -hmm. uh, so I went to Southern Evangelical, did a ministry training degree at MDiv. Um, and when I was looking at grad schools beyond that to go to PhD work, um, it was because in my time at Southern Evangelical, I realized so many different people with the ministry calling want to go into local church ministry, or they want to go into international missions. 
and they're, they're still tending to think in terms of local church ministry, but they're not necessarily thinking of how do we redeem the university? Mm. Like the, the, the university culture is in many ways churning out so much hostility and bile and, and problems for the church when that's exactly opposite of what the, the university can and should be. The university mm. could, in theory, be its most redeemed when it's also the, the closest tied to truth. As, mm. it, as I'm sure you're well aware, if you've been at Loyola, um, mm. the university system at its core was a gift of the church to the world. It was something that could not have existed if not for the the affluence and and curiosity and and the reverence that stemmed from the church in in the Middle Ages. Uh, so the the university has been many great things. Now I don't want to go too far askew here, uh, but my passion for redeeming academia was growing and growing while I was at Southern Evangelical. So by the time I was graduating, I was saying. I need to get a PhD and I need to, to yeah. prep for academic focused ministry, even if it doesn't mean I'm going to be in a church. So I went to right. Southern right. even or Southwestern, but at the time I missed their deadline for PhD admissions. I had been advised wrong by several people on the phone. Oh. And so the only thing I could apply for in July was THM, uh, Master of Theology. But I found which is one step all- up from the MDiv. Just to for people to know that's it's not the it's same like a, as the MDiv. It's one up. An MDiv is about a three-year degree. An MA is about a two-year graduate degree. An MDiv is about a three-year degree. And a THM is like a fourth year on top of it. Yeah. Um, and so I did that because I knew most of the classes would trans would transfer into my PhD work. So yeah. kill two birds with one stone, why not? So that's how I ended up nice. in THM work. It's because I was working towards uh, a research degree um, yeah. in ethics did you do a comprehensive exams and a, a dissertation in the thm or a thesis yep i i had um a reading list to to chew through and mm-hmm. um i'm sure you're familiar with that i i don't know how how um involved the reading list is for other schools because it's my understanding that seminaries might actually have to overcompensate with that because there's kind of um a gamesmanship in academia and seminaries considered less than say you know a notre dame or one of these established might might have a, a christian history or, or a catholic christian history specifically uh, but if it's a seminary it, it's not not necessarily treated with the same respect as one of these big name schools, a Boston College or NYU or Notre Dame. And that's not even talking about Ivy League. Of course, Ivy League gets the, the respect in academia. But to make up for it, my reading list was, I believe, 15 pages long. So that's a list of all the books that I had to read was 15 pages long. And yeah. it it ate my lunch. <laughs> that was hard work. Yeah. How long were the exams for that? Do you recall? I think we were able to get it done in two days. I think it ended up being somewhere, but oh gosh. That's a lot of material to know. Might have well, it it's not like we got tested on all of it, but we we could get questions on any right. one of those, you know. Any, what were the any, topics? 
there were was it broken down by topic i i'd have to go look but um they basically was there a tried Greek to come... portion was there a hebrew greek portion well okay so for my mdiv i had comprehensive exams where i had to uh take essay style questions um specifically tutored with um norm geisler and that had to cover everything really? that he considered valid in uh survey level to apologetics like all the major objections i i had to be conversant in and all the students did and we had to prove oh. it with with oh gosh like a hundred question 50 some question quiz quiz <laughs> test really? where you had really? essay style answers to it so that was the mdiv the thm that's not uh, normal for an mdiv that's that's highly high level academic yeah. stuff yeah i feel like uh, with no disrespect intended towards Southwestern because it 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 was aiming it wasn't aiming at apologetics specifically at the right. time, um, but with no disrespect intended to them, I felt like the education I got at Southern Evangelical um, was was unique and mm. empowering beyond anything I could have gotten at another uh, evangelical seminary like Orthodox Evangelical Seminary in America. Did you, did, you take, did you take Greek and Hebrew at, at, at your MDiv level? Yeah, I, I took I took Greek and Hebrew. I also had Latin and intermediate logic. That was, that was language. So I had four languages that I ended up um, studying on route to my PhD. Okay, I'm hold not on. Latin, Hebrew, Greek. <laughs> what was the fourth? Intermediate logic. As a language? Yeah. If you've if you've read much in analytic philosophy, you understand it's. <laughs> if you, for people who about, aren't, you're talking about symbolic logic. Right? Yeah, but that next next step where you're you're gonna you're gonna be covering um, uh, x is necessary and not necessary. Modal you're, logic. You're, yeah. Yeah, symbolic mm -hmm. logic's fine, but we had to go beyond that to some of the more controversial stuff. Okay. Um, all right. I can't say that I was that good at it. I, I am far more excited and interested in uh, informal logic, logical fallacies and the rhetorical side of it. Yeah. Okay. So you had Latin, Hebrew, and Greek as natural languages. What was Latin like? Was that fun? I never got to take it. It was a language. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> if I were better at languages, I think I could have gotten more out of it. I think I was able to get good grades. I was able to do what was assigned to me. But one thing I did learn in the course of my language studies is that it's not very intuitive to me. And I, I don't have any unique or natural gifting in it. I've known people that they're passionate about it and they're, they're pretty good at it. They don't necessarily yeah. have to work hard to be good at it. They can work hard to be great at it, but they're already good at it. Me, I had to work hard at it just to be adequate did and you take church I, history yeah okay i had some church history so uh, what kind of coursework did you have at the thm level that you didn't have at the mdiv do you recall that well we had i had to go into more uh, i had to broaden my philosophy and my ethics because those were okay. that was my major and minor um so gotcha. even though i had it introduction to philosophy or history of philosophy um 
um, in two courses at Southern Evangelical. And then I had um, one or two logic classes. And I had some hermeneutics classes as electives. I, I think I took two, maybe three um, courses in, in hermeneutics. Um, and that was that was my philosophy, but or philosophy training at the MDiv level. But as you're well aware, philosophy isn't just a field of knowledge. It's it's also a um, it, it's a it's a skill. It's a disposition that you yeah. cultivate. And an I approach. think that, yeah. yeah, and that's more what I picked up. I think I got a robust theological and philosophical training to where I could kind of compare them against each other and kind of critique each other from both of those perspectives. And then you could set both of those beside, say, a scientific perspective and say, okay, all of these different means of knowing uh, are valid and invalid in their different respective ways. Um, gotcha. And they should all be able to inform each other, but, you know, you got a lot of, a lot of arrogant guys often <laughs> trying to, trying to compete to see, oh, you guys don't know anything. My team's way better than your team. And, I'm not interested in that kind of competition. Mm -hmm. So what did you do your, when you got to your PhD program, did you have more comprehensive exams and, and then a dissertation after that? Yeah. What did you write your dissertation on for your PhD? Um, body ethics. It was, it was a continuation on my THM, uh, okay. which I did. Oh gosh, I can't remember the link. Maybe seventy-five pages, a hundred pages on um, body ethics. So take bioethics, but instead of applying it to life or death bio issues, apply it to the body. Things related to um, you, we could say the ethical implications regarding one's body. Gotcha. Um, so so. I think it's a really interesting field of study, but I think at the time I was just going through a lot with Hillary's health issues and just stress and not being able to pay the bills and different things. So where I just, I was glad to be done with it. And once I finished that dissertation, I didn't really want to look at it for years. Um, but looking back on it now, I realized that that really is a very fruitful subject area because we could deal with everything from the ethics of, um, uh, plastic surgery, performance-enhancing drugs, um, tattooing and scarification, uh, even things, even trivial things, trivial depending on how how far out you trace the implications. Things like um, uh, organic foods um, mm -hmm. and and cosmetics. All of yeah. these things bear upon the body, but um, right. the more you you step back and and retain a big picture perspective on things, you see it all has huge ramifications yeah. uh, when, when you just pull on that little string it's amazing what starts to come undone uh somewhere else yeah big time um so you uh basically studied the the application of philosophy and theology to contemporary cultural issues related to right and wrong that yeah. people in the church and people in the culture will face. Yeah. Um, right now I, I see the, I see a prime opportunity for body ethics regarding a lot of the, the current chaos we're, we're seeing people who have no um, concrete sense of identity. It's as if 
what's going on in your subjective experience right now is the totality of everything you are. And, and yet biblically and, and just practically speaking, um, that's such an untethered Hmm. ideologically um, mystical view that, that you're just bound to come crashing into reality sooner or later. And it's going to be a devastating fall Uh, to, to quote a, um, a um, Blue Oyster Cult song on this. <laughs> History shows again and again how nature points out the folly of man. Now that was about Godzilla. That's the chorus line. But oh, okay. you see the same thing uh, now where, where people are trying to say, oh, biology isn't destiny. Well, it might not be destiny, but it's definitely something. And if you think that you can reinvent your gender because of your feelings, uh, then you're fighting a losing battle. Uh, not only will you not win, but you're going to lose a lot of what you had uh, in the struggle. Hmm. I guess it would be a little odd if I asked you what your gender was right now. <laughs> I, I, I identify as male. <laughs> uh, but who knows? Who knows what tomorrow may hold? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Uh, I never thought we'd be in a position like this, uh, John, where my, I could ask my students, um, who maybe tell me about their father, what gender was your father? (laughs) (laughs) And they, they stop for a second and wonder what doesn't make sense about this. (laughs) Um, well, um, what did you end up doing after your PhD then? So in 2014, I finished my PhD, but at the time I had been uh, teaching at Pantego Christian Academy, also dual credit status with Texas Wesleyan University. I was teaching ethics, world religions. Um, What's it called as again? Well, um, the school? Yeah. Texas Wesleyan University. The other one? The Academy? Uh, P- Pantego. P-A-N-T-E-G-O, Christian Academy. Oh, okay. Is that a college? It's it's a high school. Oh, okay. And that's, that's in true. Arlington, Texas. So I would I would commute about 45 minutes to uh to school every day. And if I had to be at Southwestern, I'd have to drive about an hour there because we lived in Dallas at the time. Oh. So I did that up through 2015 and that that summer. Um, I took a job with uh, Bill Dembski, who at the time, uh, if you know uh, William Dembski, I don't um, know him personally, but okay. I've heard well, of him. Yeah, he's uh, well known for intelligent design theory. He's one of the big, big wigs in, in advancing yeah. that, that um, hypothesis. Right. Yeah. So he was, uh, he had gotten involved in an education website uh, called thebestschools.org. And he wanted to hire some writers to fill it with content, populate the site, and uh, make it something that could draw more traffic. Uh, He was my teacher for one class at Southwestern, and he invited me along to to be part of this this, uh, crazy wild experiment in in the marketplace. And uh, that that lasts about three years. Uh, great experience. It brought us to Pella, Iowa, where where he was based at the time. Um, 
and this is where we live now. But three years later, he sold the company for a pretty penny. And um, most all of the conservatives on staff were laid off within three months. Um, he sold not, it to, he sold it to a bunch of libs. Well, he he sold it to folks that make that that have a bigger establishment in the education world and to enter to to sales and marketing and um, commerce, even communication in the education world is often going to be dictated by uh, trends to the left, <laughs> especially in the humanities and a lot of what we did cover the humanities. Um, I don't, I don't want to rule out or, or overgeneralize, but a lot of the key, key players and influencers that are determining what's allowed, what's, what's, what's a polite society allowing in academia, at mm -hmm. least in the humanities, a lot of those decisions are dictated by, uh, politically leftward trends mm -hmm. and that, that's possibly one of the reasons why it's been um a very uphill battle uh to to try to um, make a dent in academia with my seminary background and my conservative politics but um that said there's a there's a hundred other things that we could point to because it's just it's just a, a tough field you, you have to do really good work um you have to um there's just not a whole lot of jobs for all the folks coming up with PhDs uh, and the hundred or so new jobs that will open up in philosophy, uh, philosophy of religion in the next year. So uh, it's, it's a competitive market. But yeah. at the same time, I needed to be as available as I could to help out with Hillary. And so I think it's one of those weird indirect ways that got provided. Yeah. Okay. So you were, you, you moved to iowa to be yep. to work with bill yeah and then bill moved on yep um and what did you do after that so we're in pella in the middle of the middle of the school year it was january at the time and i started looking around for jobs i was trying to prioritize teaching jobs but not that many uh, schools are hiring in January. They're hiring in, you know, getting closer to the summer. They're not hiring in January. Uh, so there weren't any teaching jobs that were really presenting themselves very well. So um, long story short, by the end of that year, I was uh, working at Pella Corporation, uh, you know, Pella Doors and Windows. Yeah. They're in Pella, Iowa. And I was working at the plant. And okay. uh, by that by that time, Hillary's ministry was starting to take off. So there would still be times where I'd have to ask off for Friday so that I could travel with her and she could do some speaking engagements. Um, so it, it, it worked well for that. Uh, but it was wearing me out because I'm I mean, I can handle the factory work, but mm -hmm. uh, it's not not my passion. It wasn't what I was trained for. I've since uh, transitioned into a um, a woodworking job where I'm at now, and uh, it allows me even more flexibility. And it's a smaller environment, and I really like the people that that are there. We can have theological conversations, 
and um, have Christian music playing, and I can have some some um, uh, podcast playing in the background. So there's a little bit I'm learning, a little bit I'm chewing on while I'm, you know, sanding a door for the fourth time. I can be wow. learning a little bit, keeping culture stuff. So it's it's offered a lot of the flexibility that I I need at this stage for the sake of uh, making sure Hillary's taken care of. Um, but you know, God provides, and if if I'm too proud to do uh, a blue collar job, then that means I'm just too proud. Um, Jesus was a was a carpenter, so I'm definitely not above it. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, when you grew up, did you grow up in a blue collar family, or did you grow up? Yeah, something yeah. else. My dad's a te- was a teacher. Uh, my mom a nurse. Uh, they're both retired now. But interestingly, even though we were raised in the church, my parents are both uh, committed Christians. Uh, my brother uh, is an atheist. And I think a lot of what drew me into apologetics, uh, worldview training, the intellectual life was that I couldn't take for granted my Christian faith. There were questions and and encounters that I would have on a regular basis with folks with someone I cared about, someone I'm related to, uh, who who didn't agree with me on something that was central to my my worldview. And so I never had that leisure of that bubble experience where you just kind of assume that everybody who's anybody is Christian because everybody I know is Christian, you know, or at least they claim to be, or at least they play the part well enough. I, all my friends are at church or at, at my Christian school uh, or in my Christian family. So there was, there was a little pinprick to that, to that balloon. So it, it was yeah. never going to hold air. Uh, that, that myth just didn't work on me. And, and yeah. yet, yet I knew plenty of people that worse that, you know, up into adulthood still kind of thought that way. And, and a lot of my experience in apologetics, trying to promote um, a, a more intelligent Christian faith, a lot of it's been trying to uh, put a fire under people's seats because they're just not that urgent. They're not that alert to this this yeah. whole this whole dimension that's going on right in front of our faces, uh, because they tend to think that oh yeah, they, they're they're still kind of shaped in their values and expectations according to all my friends are Christian. I go to church. I'm taken care of. We're good. Yeah. Why are you getting so hot? Why are you getting so excited about this? Right. No biggie. Wow. Where did you grow up? South Carolina. South Carolina. Yeah, just south of the border. Uh, so when I went to Southern Evangelical Seminary, I was driving in about 20 minutes into Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah. Oh, okay. Where'd you go to college? Uh, Charleston Southern University. And let me guess, uh, that's in Charleston. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. It's in Charleston, South Carolina, and not West Virginia. Yeah. It's a nice town. Yeah. How about you? Where'd you go to school? I went to Wayland Baptist University in Hawaii, which oh, is a Southern Hawaii. Baptist school. It's a Southern Baptist school there in, in uh, well, it's on Oahu. No so, kidding. Um, Charleston Southern, Southern Baptist too. Pardon? I went to a Southern Baptist college. Is that yes, what that was- is? Mm-hmm. Charleston? Charles, what's it called? Charleston, what is it? Charleston Southern University. They're, they're That's in a Baptist the, uh, college, really? Yeah. They used to be Baptist College of Charleston. Oh, okay. How far away is that from the uh, from that uh, military school? From the Citadel? 
30 yeah, minutes. There you go. 30 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've walked around the Citadel before. I haven't. Yeah. That's a nice little area. I like that area. That's yeah, a good place to settle in and, and stay. Did What did you major in in college? <laughs> I double majored in religion, which mm-hmm. is kind of a um, theology degree. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, communication minor, not minor, communication emphasis in in theater, and I minored in sociology. Oh, cool. Did you feel like you got a good education there? Reasonably well, but I went there primarily for ministry training. Um, as I as I said before, I thought I was going into seminary to prepare for local church pastor work. So I was at the time I was I was aiming more for having the skills and the wherewithal to be able to hold my own in a pulpit and doing pastoral care yeah. and doing different elements. So I think I got the the kind of ministry training that I went in for, but I wasn't going there for philosophy. I wasn't going there okay. for apologetics. I didn't really expect any of that to really become driving passions of mine. But by the time I graduated college, I knew apologetics needs to be a big part of whatever I'm doing. And so when I went to Southern Evangelical, even though I thought I was going to go to, to a local church pastorate, I, I was I was starting to to aim yeah. more specifically towards apologetics by that time. And and Geisler's uh, school is is that in South Carolina too? No, that one's in in it's Matthews, North Carolina, but it's it's right in the Charlotte area. Okay. Yeah. Now was it your brother's atheism? Think they're the same. Yeah. Was it your brother's atheism that? was the driving force for you to get on board with apologetics and philosophy or was that just you noticing that philosophy is more important than you realized later? Well, to, to be honest, I didn't have enough exposure to philosophy or positive experiences with it before SES um, okay. to where I could, I could have a positive sense of what philosophy is it wasn't until i got to ses and by that time i was in interested in apologetics through josh mcdowell um Mm -hmm. more than a carpenter um and some of the evidential apologetics and just a little bit of arguments for god that Mm -hmm. line of apologetics and so when i got to um when i got to ses i primarily thought of apologetics as Countercult ministries. We're trying to prove to folks the resurrection really happened. The Jesus of the Bible is the true one, not these other fake Jesuses. And that's what I thought apologetics was. And you know, that's definitely a big part of it. Yeah, um, but, it is. But but the more we dug into it, the more I realized we got to get into this meta level. We have to get underneath all of these assumptions and pre um, preconceptions people have that are yeah. that are uh, uh, effectively their kind of awnings covering. Yeah, the well of, of the wellspring of their heart. And so if you're mm-hmm. going to get down there with some Jesus, you got to get underneath all of these, these blockades in the way. Uh, and that's in many ways, what apologetics uh, does when it, when it dignifies philosophy, it allows you to get to the meta level questions of how do we know, what does it mean to know? Um, what, what do we mean by existence? Um, and right. then, yeah. And, and these are all, all um, priors for a good theology, too. 
And, and it can keep, I can often tell people who have a theo, theology training uh, without any of the, the reinforcement from philosophy, uh, mm. because they tend to say things that philosophers are like, differently. Eh, <laughs> yeah. Can you give an example of that? So, okay, so someone's maybe doesn't know quite what you're talking about. Maybe they're something I, to hang I'm on to. I'm trying to think of a good example. I, um, if you think of one, uh, that's fine. But, I'll tell you. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll tell you one if, if it comes to me. I do know a lot of worship music gets to me that way because I'll mm -hmm. hear, as a philosopher, one of those skills you pick up, whether you want it or not, is you can hear what people mean and what they say and recognize when they're different things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you hear a lot of that in, in worship music where you know what they're trying to say, yeah. but you also know what they said. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you're charitable, you'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But sometimes if they're implicitly teaching theology and they still have these squishy uh, terms that, that, can can communicate two or three different yeah. things then you don't quite know what theology you're actually coaching people into very good and even though yeah i know worship music isn't teaching in a formal strict didactic sense but it's still kind of coaching encouraging and people still get a lot of their theology through music no well, that's a i could make the same point about law which is my area i did my phd in constitutional law and you got to pay really close attention to the words that are used because yes. sometimes the meaning that's given at a time mm. doesn't well i'm what i should say is the the intention what someone's trying to say and what they actually say are not the same mm. thing and it's not obvious right away it's yeah. not obvious for late until later yeah. <laughs> then when when another generation comes and says, "Oh, look what the law says. Oh, look at yeah. this. Look at what we can do." There's and, a lot of overlap, or what we can't do. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I mean, I could give you tons of examples of that. I don't want to, you know, go too crazy, but but it, it's um, I, I'll give you one just example. When I was going through Wayland Baptist University, God bless Wayland. I was having a government class there on Kaneohe Marine Corps Station there on the windward side of the island. And I had a great uh, teacher who was a retired, I think, E E8 or E9 enlisted guy who later who got his graduate training in government. But anyway, he was using a standard textbook at the time. And we mm -hmm. came to the part on the second amendment <laughs> and the second amendment was so that it was such a small section. And just, I, I read that and I totally cringe because it was mm -hmm. complete, just almost basically ignored, but it was even worse than being ignored. Cause at least if it was ignored, you could have said, ah, they just kind of skipped over it, mm -hmm. but there was erroneous stuff in there. Mm -hmm. And it was a really superficial reading of the sec of the text of the Second Amendment, and um, hardly any history context yeah. at all. Yeah. And this was in the '90s, so you know this is it, it. It was like you could just tell the bias of the person writing this. You know. Yep. 
and um you know i'll i'll say just because i teach this stuff now i teach the second amendment now i'm teaching the american founding at azusa pacific this semester and so i teach constitutional law and I'm having them read uh, Stephen Hallbrook's uh, The Founder's Second Amendment, which came out in 2008. Okay, so it, th- those those kind of materials weren't very common back when I was going through. But mm-hmm. but the point remains that the stuff was there. I mean, you could it, all you had to do is put it together. It was obvious. And one of the questions that it, that is it an individual right or is it a community kind of almost a government right yeah it's it's in the second amendment and and the wording of the second amendment is a little odd and it when you're reading the bill of rights it's it just stands out as a little odd because mm-hmm. there's a, a claw there's two clauses they're both dependent clauses and then there's an independent clause so what do you do with that you know a well-regulated militia, comma. That's not a complete sentence. It's just it's just this dependent clause mm-hmm. being necessary for the security of a free state, comma. That's a dependent clause too. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That is a complete sentence. So what do you do? You have a complete sentence. You have an independent clause, but it's got these two dependent clauses in the, in the front. And, you know, when they wrote the Second Amendment, <laughs> it's kind of like, well, what are you doing? It's not very clear. Uh, they could have said it differently. They could have said it a lot more clearly. Yeah. But um, but it just goes to show you that I think that everybody that read it originally felt like it was perfectly clear. Uh, you know what? Mm-hmm. You know what we're trying to say. I mean, it's just the same people that are doing the worship music and you know, this theology isn't really drilled down very carefully. And yeah, you know, it's, it's cause they were like, ah, you, you know, you, you know, we, we just went through with the British and <laughs> what the kind of stuff they were just trying to pull on us. So you kind of, you know, what we're, you know, well, you fast forward and it's 1990 something in Hawaii and Wayland Baptist. And then, and they don't, they act like they don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes you well if there's enough there to be able to figure it out but if if you are a good and teachable student of history that will in many ways restrict what live political options are available for you to believe like what what political policy options can you buy into if you've been a student of history you're going to rule this stuff out and this stuff out. And that really narrows down what you consider to be uh, viable avenues going forward uh, that are worth your vote, that are worth your support. Because um, we've there's a lot to be learned from uh, the mistakes of the past. Mm-hmm. I'm a I'm a youngest. I'm the baby of the family. I have an older brother and an older sister. And in some ways, I think I've got a a low grade analogy with that because I had the leisure of learning from their mistakes. They went before me. Yeah. (laughs) And if I'm observant, I can save a lot of heartache going forward because they they did this and got punished or they did that and it came back to haunt them. And so I'm not going to do that. Or if they did it this way and it saved them time and made friends. Okay, well, I'll do that. Well, and, and yeah, like you, when you read church history, 
you can see the kind of things that people are arguing about. And sometimes a lot of the times it is unclarity in the language, like it, whether it's the biblical language or whether it's some of the <clears throat> what to include in what creed or mm-hmm. what what the philosophical implications are of something. It's the same yeah. thing. And it's hard. And so it's it's a good skill to have to try to be as clear as possible, try to have what you mean to say to be the same thing yeah. as what you actually said. Yeah. And that's a and most people are not paying attention to that. Yeah. So for that reason alone, I salute you for having that on your radar. Now, you care a lot about the the issues of the body. What would you say is um the number one or number two a top priority for you as far as one of these controversial issues that goes on right now? Anything pressing? Uh, well, a lot of the um, queering efforts, trying to make male and female ambiguous. Okay. Um, I, I see this as an insidious um, ideal, ideology that does not have uh, children's best interests in mind and does not have the best interests of family or parents in mind. And ultimately, I see it as uh, a deeply toxic um worldview but potentially growing into or becoming its own worldview um that that could have devastating ramifications for society now i I need to qualify that because i don't want to make it out to be more than it is uh, because i think at some level a lot of the people that are playing along with this don't really think it's a good idea but they're acting in their own best interest because it seems to be fashionable among people who make big decisions. Uh, you know, you get canceled if you if you say uh, that women are adult human females, uh, or you lose some lobbying support from this demographic or from this group if you say what you know. Uh, that doesn't mean people don't know it. It just means conversation is chilled on that matter uh, because. People are scared to speak out. It's it's what um, uh, Rod Dreher calls um, soft totalitarianism. It's not hard totalitarianism. It's not an Orwellian landscape we're looking at that's going to radically restrict what you're allowed to say and do. But it is a soft totalitarianism in the sense that you can get canceled and lose a lot of privilege and access in society unless you play the game, unless you uh, refuse to acknowledge that Men can't be women and women can't be men. They could be mutilated men and feel and think that they feel like a woman, but that doesn't mean that any man has ever once known what it feels like to be a woman. Philosophically and the idea of identity and personhood, um, that that doesn't hold water. I had a um, a professor made a, um, he was list, he he told the story in class. He said he was bebopping along to this Tom Petty song while he was driving into work. And it said, you don't know how it feels to be me. And of course, this philosophy professor's like, how would you know that? How do you know that you don't know how it feels to be me? For all we know, yours and my experience of self could be identical. But since I can't access yours and you can't access mine, we can't compare them. And that's how philosophers are. So, you know, right. There's good and bad, um, but that does point to a more uh, 
more basic problem of how can any man know what it feels like to have the, the body and physiology and psychology that is scientifically demonstrable of adult human females, whatever you want to call that, that's still an adult human female. And there's still plenty of, plenty of uh, polling and demographic evidence and bi biology and history. And for a man to say he knows what that feels like, how do you know you just don't feel weird and you think that's what women feel like? Mm -hmm. And so th this is just untenable, not to mention it, it has tremendous ramifications for our expectations for personal responsibilities to the world, uh, procreation, ability to, to be mature enough to socially and emotionally develop so that you're not the center of the world, you're not a narcissist, but you actually are a selfless, giving, charitable person who lives more for other people than for yourself. So you have the potential to be a good parent. You know, those are the kinds of things that it takes for society to be solvent. Mm -hmm. But if you've got whole generations that are, are taught to, to think and view the world in, in terms of radical individualism and to, to replace uh, calm, um, dispassionate judgment with emotivism and emotionalism as if something can't be true unless you have a feeling about it and something can't be false if you feel good about it. Uh, that that's a terrible epistemology. It doesn't work at all. Uh, not to mention it, it handicaps you to being immature and unfit for marriage or family. Um, but you can, you can see how some of the implications for gender confusion and uh, some of the, the constellation of issues that we're seeing happening in elementary school. Now though that could uh really come back to haunt us in, in short order as we start seeing, for example, um, hormone blockers and puberty blockers that they say are reversible, yet they don't have the long-term studies to prove it. How come they don't have the long-term studies to prove it? Well, because it's unethical to do that. And so you can't do the studies on, on children to prove it because it wouldn't be allowed according to basic bioethics. And so why would it be unethical? Because it's not purely reversible and they have reason to think that it's proper, or at least they have reason to think that it's not entirely reversible. Wow. So all the sense that we can just close that door once we open it, we right. can confuse people about gender. We can confuse them about um, just what kind of reverence we need to have about sexuality going forward and be chaste and modest so that we don't have this long sexual past by the time we get married. All of these things revolving around gender and sexuality, um, folks are trying to rewrite the script and think that it's still going to have a happy ending. Yeah. Well, the the problem is, is you don't get to stay the author of that script. Eventually, some reality starts taking the pen from you and writes the ending to it. And it's not there's no guarantee that it's going to be a happy ending. Hmm. Yeah. What, that, what about what about the topic? Things, by the way. What Sorry. about the topic of abortion? You, you care <laughs> yeah. about that too? Yeah, I, I'm pretty pretty excited about that issue. Pretty uh, concerned for it. Um, so when now, I talk, I'm going to link. I'm going to link what you just said with this current topic of abortion, and I'm yeah. going to pretend to be what I'm not, which is a Democrat, and I'm going <laughs> to say to you, John you're a man mm -hmm. you cannot have a view about abortion 
you cannot have a view about abortion. <laughs> it's funny, the Democrats don't seem to connect these two things very well. Um, they pretend not to know what a woman is on the one hand, and then they, they say you have to be a woman to have a view about abortion unless you support yeah. it. Then you can have a view about it. So uh, what do you say about that? Um, and what's your I concern have... about abortion? Are you for it? You're pro-choice? Oh, I, I'm against it. Elective abortion. Um, yeah. Usually what people mean. Mm. Um, yeah. So here on out, unless I say otherwise, I'm talking about elective abortion, not therapeutic abortion, like to save the life of the mother or something like that. Yeah. So in elective abortion, um, if it is a crime against humanity, and I think there's a more than reasonable argument that it is, then by right of being a human, I have as much pause as anyone concerned for justice has to speak out against it. Hmm. Um, now, the short answer to this, now th there's a whole case that could be made to that. I don't think it'd be wise to try to go into all of that right now. But the short answer is, uh, do I have to be black to oppose racism? Do I have to be a woman to oppose, oppose sexism? Do I have to be disabled to oppose ableism? No, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. And by right of being a human, I have a right to speak out against injustice against my fellow human beings. Um, I don't have to dive into the whole personhood argument to get there. I just need to point out that if it's wrong, then, it's, then I can say that and be correct. Um, right. Truth it doesn't have a gender. Truth doesn't have a race. Truth just is what it is. And as long as we're lining up with truth, then we're in a very powerful position. Um, might be very unpopular, but we have the leverage of reality to push against that, that can challenge anything that, that um, pits itself as a compelling lie. So truth isn't relative. N no. <laughs> Short answer, no. There, there's What's the there's a answer? more sophisticated answer we could give that that tries to parse out relative aspects of truth and and then there are truths that you speak that the the reference point the objective reference point is a sliding scale of some sort and in a sense it's objective relative. I don't think you necessarily want to go into all of that, but um, truth is objective. We we both can access at least some facts of reality. Um, regardless of, of what angle we're coming at it and still have some degree of common access to it. And in that sense, it's a object that you and I can interact with. It's not just a subject that's private to the subject, the subjective, right? Um, or, or just relative to an individual perspective. I'm, I'm right. Perspectivism has some uh, merit to add to the conversation so we don't become too clunky and and simplistic um, but there's still objective truth like two plus two equals four no matter what your race or color or, or politics are do you do you uh worry that the folks over at that blue collar thing that you're working at the the pella corp are gonna watch this and and say hey you don't have a job here anymore you pro-life <laughs> beep 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 <laughs> are you worried about censorship and a blue collar job like that um some not terribly um, okay 
And why is it in white collar jobs? There's more censorship in white collar jobs, aren't aren't there? The the reason I would be less concerned about it in your typical blue collar job is at least twofold. One, if you're on an assembly line like I was, you don't have time to do all of that other gabbing where you're saying stuff that'll get you in trouble. You have to produce a new window every 90 seconds or every two minutes. You have to do it. So you have to go fast. So you don't quite have the same leisure. Um, uh, but number two, there's a, there's a certain, um, you might say, pragmatic filter for ideas that at a blue collar level, um, it's getting routinely tested uh, and it doesn't quite touch ground. It doesn't quite translate for real people who have real issues and they need to pay the bills and all the theory and ideology that can look great on paper. If it doesn't translate into the real world, then it's not compelling to them. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's a lot that goes on that is kind of fashionable dinner conversation for white collar and and um, Ivy League and and you know high society. It, it could be fashionable conversation in that setting, um, but blue collar people are like, okay, does it work? Right. What what does this mean? What what are the practical implications? Now, pragmatics aren't uh, aren't generally a verifier. They don't make a thing true, but they can show a thing false if if it's not if it wasn't true in the first place. But yeah. something could be practical and still be a lie. I, yeah, I, I illustrate that. I illustrate for people. Um, suppose I told you that uh, my car is run by gerbils on wheels like if i were to lift up the the hood and i never do because they they like their privacy those gerbils on (laughs) wheels they run really fast and if i crank the crank the engine pretty powerful too (laughs) yeah all i have to do is regularly feed them gasoline whenever it gets down to empty and i need to bathe them every three three to five thousand miles in in motor oil and they're happy now that's a functional lie I, I get my oil change, I keep up with my gas, and the car drives. That'll get me a long way. Does that mean my car's actually filled with hamsters on, on a wheel? No. Lies can work and still be lies. Truth must work at minimum. It, so that, that's kind of how pragmatics work. You can, you can show a, a set of ideas such as men can be women, um, you can show them faults by practical application, uh, but if you just stay in the theoretical, if you're just trapped in the classroom and you never have to see what this looks like in the real world, then there's a lot of bad ideas that you can you can be swayed into. Yeah. Well, how do you show that men can't be women, though, practically? How, do, how does that work? Uh, show me a biological male. Well, well there's a couple ways uh, to approach it. I would mm-hmm. I would probably ask the individual person what context or uh, in what sense do they mean this? Are mm-hmm. they talking about um, sports? Um, that's one of the easier ways to to test it. Um, you you there's a I forget the website, but you can go see the top high school male performers uh, and their numbers compared to Olympic athlete females, and high school males would still dominate in most track and field sports compared to women. Hmm. And that's women who have been training for, you know, decades to be the best in their field. And that's because physiologically it's well known. It's well demonstrated. You can look it up, challenge me on all of this, but men on average 
have um, higher, uh, have more muscle mass, have thick tensor bone density, uh, have more of a load bearing uh, um, posture and and um, frame. Um, they they're able to generate regenerate muscle and and have uh, greater agility and fast twitch muscle fibers. All of those things are given to men. Now, there's never been a single biological male, you know, X, Y, uh, X, X, you know, the talking about at a genetic level, there's never been a biological male to birth a baby. Women can have this, this other strength that men don't have. Men have a strength that women, at least on average, don't have. And so the the physiology of it is is pretty pretty concrete tangible now it gets a little more tricky if they're starting to talk about say relational dynamics mm -hmm. emotions and relationships and social dynamics but it's not it's not impossible because uh you could still do polling data and find that uh overwhelmingly women prefer a man who's bigger and stronger than them most women don't want a man who is shorter and less physically fit and less physically able than them. Now, well, let me, let me push back on a little bit because okay. when we talk about what's average, it might be missing the point here because we're talking okay. about individuals that are almost by definition, not falling in the mainstream. Right. Yeah. So we're talking about people that are maybe exceptions to the rules not the rule themselves and okay so what what would you say about that like well if you were to compartmentalize the social emotional relational dynamics from the biology and physiology dynamics if you say okay we're keeping these separate right i'm not talking about biology i'm talking about social you know social right. stuff right. i'd say why are you separating them what what gives you the the right to treat these like they're not related they're, right. they're aspects within the same reality where we both still have to use the same taxis. We both have to use the same elevator. It's not like we got to keep keep all of these things separate. The same reality encompasses both. And in many ways, those social, emotional, relational, psychological differences are very, uh, very sensible outworkings of those physiological, biological differences. I, I'm uh, reading a book right now, Critique and the Sexual Revolution. It's by a, a um, political liberal, possibly someone who even identifies as, as progressive. She's pro-choice, and she's pointing out how um, the evolutionary account for, for women and men uh, as they approach sex and relationships, uh, just being honest about what we, what we know from interviews and polling data and stuff like that, um, the sexual revolution overwhelmingly did a great disservice to women by treating a typically masculine, stereotypically masculine approach to sex, like that's going to be women's best access to liberation. So women basically have to conform to a masculine norm if they want to be free, if they want to be uh, liberated women. But why is a masculine, stereotypically masculine, or what she calls social, what is it, um, so, sociosexual? It's there, there's a, an insider term uh, for someone who likes a lot of variety in their, their sexual relationships. So multiple partners, not longstanding, not, not 
not um deeply invested polyamorous well that's that's one something that that plays out but think think the stereotypical frat boy the guy who just wants to have a lot of hookups um that's that's something that is is more common in men and less common in women yeah and that makes a lot of sense if men aren't the ones who have to deal with a baby if there's pregnancy right right true uh she now they both through social conventions i.e family would have to deal with the baby yeah. but if you weaken those social conventions then he doesn't have to deal with the baby um you can create escape clauses like abortion like divorce yeah. or no fault divorce and you could say well why even get married let's let's totally dissolve all the reinforcements that make sure that she's not left strapped with a child and all the emotional and physiological ties that she feels the bonding the the maternal instinct all of that she doesn't have to do that by herself and we had a lot of social reinforcements in the past to protect that so that that's a good thing and not just a burden but if the goal is to be as um sexually casual and non-committed as possible then pregnancy becomes a bad thing and what does that do for womanhood overall well it now says the the most obvious distinctive that separates women from men is now a liability yeah and, and that's not very pro-woman if if you can step back and think about it in context so mm. i think the social yeah. emotional relational psychological aspects that are more of an average between women and men they while those are different from men and women overall they're not unconnected from the more demonstrable um harder objective differences that are to be found in biology uh, and and you still don't yeah. have have a even a third gender because i say gender in the classic sense um of sex i'm not well, talking about sense. right uh back when i was defending the definition of marriage i would yeah. oftentimes get some students to say why do you care why do you care about this you know, what does it affect you? Why, why do you care? And I would say, well, why do you care that I care? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my guess is it's probably for the same reason that I care. That's and, a good point. And that reason is it's an important topic. Yeah. <laughs> you well, know, I don't think well, they, they expect that they expect to use a, some kind of a rhetorical device to, uh, you know, shame me into having their same position, yeah. which not caring is effectively the having the same position. But, you know, I tell you what I care about, why I care about this. Yeah. Is it, it doesn't really matter to me unless it starts affecting kids in a, in a way that's really harmful and we're changing public policy about it. Then I start paying attention. Or even social conventions, like when folks share their pronouns, which is fine. I don't mind that at all. If you feel like you need to tell me how I'm supposed to refer to you in the third person as if I don't know, uh, that's not me that's limited. That seems to be you that's limited. Because mm -hmm. that's the first time in history that anybody ever felt like they had to do that before mm -hmm. and pretend like we don't know what these terms mean. But when someone says that I need to use a term that seems like the not non-appropriate term for me to use, like a third personal pronoun, that's inappropriate. 
that that feels manipulative to me and then that that's what makes me care and yeah. the truth is i mean like when you're talking about like you know x's and y chromosomes and stuff yeah. people giving birth i don't really take myself to know what people's chromosomes are because for most of human history that's not really it wasn't really an item of knowledge i mean it might turn out that that's all true but i think a bit much more commonsensical i think you appear to be a man to me and that's what i go by i don't go by genitals because i don't check i that would be a crime and that would be, you know, in public, that's a, that's not what people did. People didn't check like that. And I think, you know, at least, at least not outside of your close family, if there's circumcision, that's one thing, because that's a, that's a tradition that goes way back in the Judeo-Christian yeah. tradition. But, but like, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's something that I, you appear to be a man and so there when i talk about you when you're not there i use the word he um well i don't to, to, that's to that. that's that's simple simple as that i it's not that there's any kind of genetics involved or anything. I, sometimes I, it might i might not be able to tell like if if you turn your back and i can't the angle i can't quite tell then i might use like a different pronoun like they which that's very common in English to use the pronoun they when you don't know. Like, let's say it, it, there's a couple different ways people use they. Um, it's usually when you don't know the gender. Mm -hmm. Not saying that it's subjective. It's just I don't know it yet. Yeah. Um, like, so, for example, if I'm reporting a crime. And I can just see there are human as a human being out there maybe vandalizing or something like that. I might say, yeah, they have spray paint. They are wearing a hoodie. Uh, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm using they not because they shouted out up to me, my pronouns are they, them. Yeah. Uh, and, and you, you disrespect me if you don't, it, it's not yeah. that I, it's not that my concern is to be respectful to this criminal. <laughs> um that's not why i use pronouns i mean i i i don't really respect hitler but i don't i've never it's never occurred to me to call hitler a she because i'm going to get back at hitler you know yeah. because no i mean it, it, it's just it's about accuracy it's not about respect there's and so something... i just use they and and if it appears to me that the person is a man i will say he yeah. And, and, and I, another thing is I might not know how many there are. It might be there's two of them. And I, that's why I say they, but usually that's the only reason besides like babies, ironically, when talking about abortion, we use sometimes the word it to refer to a baby. And I don't like this about how we do this. Um, so there's, there's two things that I, I, uh, want to share what are you going to name it what are you going to name it john what are you going to name it and if i say well i'm going to name him john i don't continue to use the word it i yeah. it would be inappropriate for me to say its name is john and hey, look let me hold it. it let me I'm, let me I'm... let me hold it <laughs> so so there's there's two really important things that that you you just you mentioned that I, I have to comment on okay. uh, one. There's only two sex gametes. 
um, there's, there's sperm and egg. Until you can come up with a third one, there's not another sex. Um, so when folks try to make it out like, like there's, there's third or, or there's, not a, there's no binary, that is not an innocuous um, uh, hypothesis. It's a very intentional hypothesis that where people coming from a framework where they tend to see all binaries as oppressive as the powerful versus the powerless or the less powerful, and they're oppressing. So in the male-female binary, it's assumed men are the powerful, women are the powerless, and we need to break down that binary so it's not this, this uh, hegemony of, of the has versus the have-nots. And that's one of the intentional efforts to queerify gender, is to break down all binaries so that you have a, a more egalitarian landscape where everything is really a matter of equals. Now, I don't think that ideology actually works. I don't think that's how nature's arranged, um, but there's there's elements of truth and goodness that I think they're aiming at, which are, are important to point out. But as, as long as there's only two sex gametes, there's only two sexes, i.e. two biological genders. Uh, and until someone can come up with a third one, then, we're still dealing with a gender binary, naturally speaking. Um, and that's that I think is a, a way to get around the genetics question because there is intersex conditions, you know, X, Y, 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 but presents as X, Y, those kinds of things. Hold on, um, what's, in, what's intersex? How's that intersex, different? Intersex is a condition, a set of conditions that affects something like, like one or less than 1% of the population and refers to either uh, genetic abnormalities that are not the conventional uh, male-female genetic uh, prototypes, uh, or it can also include uh, physiological abnormalities where men and women um, uh, present with some combination of both sex organs uh, or related internal anatomy. Um, it, it's usually treated like this mic drop moment to prove that the gender binary doesn't exist, but intersex doesn't create a third gamete. What, what you often have is someone with say a low grade intersex condition where they can still reproduce. And if they're acting as the male member, then they're biological female, they're biological male, but they have, have um, a physiological condition. Like I've got asthma. You know, some people have diabetes, some people have have different conditions. And this is one of those kinds of conditions that happens to affect the sex hormones, but it's still a male or it's still a female because that person can can produce a baby and this person can ejaculate but not produce a baby. Um, so you still have those things. Some folks are not able to, they're, they're sterile because of their intersex condition. And And what might be surprising to most people is that uh, national levels of intersex uh, support organizations overwhelmingly favor the gender binary. It doesn't do them any good to treat their condition like it proves there's some third or more genders because the condition usually has or, or often has uh, medical side effects that need to be treated. And if folks are telling you, you don't need treatment, you're healthy. No, I th I think I need hormone supplements because my puberty is going to go go wonky and I'm going to have really weird side effects if I don't. And, and so if you treat unhealthy as healthy, then that that starts to become a medical issue and the ideology then becomes uh, dangerous. So 
intersex conditions don't disprove the gender binary, the gametes still give us a, a ground level biological argument that there's only two genders, biological logical genders. Now, to speak to something else you said, I think it's important to look closely whenever someone's trying to ambiguate, when someone's trying to make things blurry because you, the general motivation for blurring things is because you're trying to hide something. Uh, guys will throw a smoke grenade if they're trying to hide their troop movements, you know? They're gonna go around a corner and they don't wanna be shot at, so they throw a smoke grenade. If you're trying to make a tactical movement in, in culture and in society and in, uh, in media, then the smoke grenade is ambiguating language. To use terms that are harder to pinpoint, it's or, or that everybody thinks they know what it means, but you're using it in a different way on purpose so that you can sneak something in. So whenever people are using language in, in non-traditional or, or, or um, potentially propagandist ways, look closer because there's probably some, some uh, prestidigitation trying to, they're trying to pull on you. They're trying, there's some sleight of hand. Um, language really, really matters. And the, the pronouns thing, yeah. I don't think this is, it matters terribly much in itself. I think what matters about it is it's the smoke grenade. What's going on behind the scenes with the, the pronouns? And if someone's asking me to call him a her, is that honest? So it sounds like it's manipulation to me because... Yeah. It's just, it's an odd usage because I don't manage, I've never managed how people talk about me behind my back. The third personal yeah. pronoun is always face-to-face. -face, the, the pronoun is you, mm. right? Which is gender neutral. Yeah. Uh, or it's I mm. or me, <laughs> if I'm referring to myself, mm. those are, those are pronouns, but uh, the the word you is also spelled exactly the same if they're if, if it's plural. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's an unfortunate ambiguity of English. He and she, those are terms that are up to the speaker, depending on whether the speaker thinks the person referred to is male or female. That's always how it's been in any language, and. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard that some languages don't have pronouns. I don't know if Latin does. Does Latin have pronouns? I'm not yeah. sure. You don't have does to have use he them or she as intensively as we do in English, but you can you can fix it into the morphology. So you have a have a it's word. It's in the morphology. Yeah. 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 But but they also have separate pronouns if you want to over clarify. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Because okay. sometimes the morphology could be ambiguous, and and adding that pronoun lets you know. Oh. This is referring to that masculine, not this other masculine thing mentioned before it. Yeah, because yeah. okay. you you can still have, um, well, like like in Spanish, you can have um, grammatical gender, and it doesn't say anything about biological gender. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Well, I don't. You know, I mean, sometimes people over overcomplicate this stuff, and to me, the 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 third personal pronoun management is is odd because that's typically not how pronouns work when you're dealing with third personal pronouns. It's not the, the person referred to managing it. It's it, how it's a, how it appears to the person speaking. 
and it's up to mm-hmm. them which which word to use based on yeah. how how it appears to them and so yeah. it sounds it sounds like the person being referred to wants to manage that like i i appear to you this way yeah and it's like well no i don't that's not how you appear to me <laughs> yeah so so um are you telling me that it, i have to you have to appear to me i'm, I'm sorry are you what are you saying exactly are you, are you saying i have to see something i don't see yeah that sounds like manipulation to me yeah that that's a that's a really good observation how you distinguish the the third person and how we don't have control over how people talk about us yeah. behind our backs yeah. and that's kind of what the third person category is is for and it's, it's not, never been about respect it's about been about it's been about accuracy I, I don't know if you've ever seen this show it's called billions have you ever seen this show it's no. on amazon it's on amazon prime it's called billions and it's a it's it's okay. I mean, there's some things I like about it. There's some things I don't like about it. One of the things that I find a bit false about it is it's, I think it takes itself to be a realistic show, realistic, meaning very believable, mm-hmm. not like science fiction or whatever. Yeah. And they have a character in the show that says, tells people to call them, call her, they, them. And it's clearly a female. It's clearly a woman. And every character on the show, no matter how they relate to this individual, refers, uses the they, them pronoun. And it feels, it feels very false to me. Yeah. Um, And, and it's, the context is a competitive, uh, bloodthirsty, otherwise quite totally pagan and and um uh darwinistic kind of killer be killed kind of uh wall street ish yeah capital uh management type of a show and it just seems to be false that people in new york all uh use the same odd pronoun when yeah. it's not it's it she doesn't look it's like, not a hollywood like them. dinner party it's not a hollywood dinner party it's new york it feels <laughs> it feels it feels really forced like look at us being good examples here for hollywood and for people yeah. across america and, and well, it just feels like a project like like the audience is some kind of project or something like they're the, trying that to... rod rod Dreher book live not by lies where uh he, he's he's quoting uh, a, a Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, mm-hmm. speech as when you're facing uh, a totalitarian or or some other kind of tyrannical force, yeah. and they're they're controlling so much that um, your options are are extremely limited. What advice yeah. do you give people as they're trying to find a way to move forward and you know carve out some way to still be faithful to their God? Um, and he says, live not by lies. And if someone's telling me yeah, that I need yeah. to call them by a gender reference that they've already revealed is not the, their biological gender. Oftentimes folks say, I was born a man, but I identify as a woman. Um, uh, or or um, <laughs> they, them, if once you've come out as as a an individual and not a multiple personality 
conflation. Um, and, and you're and you let us know to your point earlier uh, whether you're you were born male or female or that's what you were before you came out of the closet or whatever the reference is. I can't call you a plural. You're not a plural. Even if you're demon possessed, you are the one I'm talking about, not whatever demons possessing you. You right. might have multiple personalities, but I'm talking to that individual, right. not to the different uh, schisms that they may may undergo. Uh, yeah. You're an individual, and I have to use a singular now that I know which gender describes your your biology. Mm -hmm. um, and so I can't now I can find ways around it because I I'm not trying to hurt people's feelings. I'm not trying to start an argument with every reference to a person in the third person, um, yeah. but um, there are ways around it, like using their, their proper name right. as much as possible um, or pointing, right. Hey, th this person over here was saying such and such. And I didn't have to say he, she, they, them, um, but finding ways to try to respect and honor people. Cause you know, sometimes it is tied in with, with some real ideological confusion or baggage. And frankly, there's, there's a whole uh, burgeoning mental health crisis that, that is, is set to explode any time now as folks realize that this kind of uh, individualism, emotivism, and, um, um, the effects of social media in many ways have left us very immature and unprepared for the harsh realities of the world. Mm. And as we get into the workplace and as, as kids are growing up and realizing, oh, that stint that I had in eighth grade where I took puberty blockers and then I quit in ninth grade, that may have some side effects. You know, there's a, the, the, there, there are consequences to these types of actions. And I think a lot of them are going to be mental health issues. So, with that said, we should be trying to find ways to to honor and respect people, even when we can't lie about them or to them. Uh, honor and respect them because you, or, you or never. Or when we feel a little bit disrespected by being by the manipulation that we sense, because actually yeah, that's that's actually the disrespectful thing is to manipulate yeah. somebody. Yeah. Into, you never quite to saying know what something they think is false. Yeah. That's. Yeah. That's just that that's actually disrespectful. Yeah, the, that soft totalitarianism, um, yeah. the more it, it squeezes, yeah. uh, there's a lot of liberty minded Americans who are going to have to figure out um, what what degree of their focus on freedom and liberty and individual autonomy, how much of that is some kind of Americanized ideology and how much of it is is a God-given yearning for, for freedom, to breathe free air. And, and somewhere in that balance, I think, is, is where we find uh, a way going forward because there is a way. And, you know, I'm, I vote conservative. I'm a social conservative. I vote pro-life. Uh, I, I love me some American Eagles, some Chuck Norris, some good action movies. You know, I'm very what, what stereotypical. Do you, what do you mean by the term conservative? Uh, well, like let, me, let me get to my Klan point. Or, or you let vote, me get, you're get for slavery? Point. Let me get to my point in just a second. Um, um, I, I am in many ways a, a pretty stereotypical, self-identified conservative. That said, it's very easy to make America and American nationalism an ideology because we're remarkably clever and innovative in our means of ideology. I'm sorry, in our means of idolatry. 
We can make all sorts of things into idols. We can make our theology into an idol, forgetting God for the sake of our thoughts about God. And we can make um, the whatever American uh, Christian history there is, we can make that our idol instead of making God our proper object of worship. Now, when I say conservative, um, I mean, I want to conserve the better parts of culture. And, and I take special interest in, in seeing that our policy and governmental approach um, takes special care to, to bolster and, and protect the integrity of American families, traditional okay. families. All right. I'm not a Georgian monarch or a, um, uh, a monarchist or a uh, <laughs> or a KKK or any anything like that. There, there are, I'm sure many folks who who identify along those lines would consider themselves conservative, um, but they're trying to conserve different things than I think the the God fearing, Jesus loving, family minded persons trying to conserve in in a a in our current cultural context. Yeah. Yeah. I stopped using that term a long time ago, liberal versus conservative. People still use it of me, but I, I, because I don't know what it means when people say it, because I'm constantly around people that don't really know the history of the Republican party or the history of the democratic party. And I find that they want to avoid those terms and they don't, they're actually more, they're more clear terms, I think, but the, the, there's a lot of folks that like this, these other terms and especially liberal. I mean, liberal's been, I don't know, kind of replaced by progressive, I think. Yeah. Yeah. These these are all loaded terms. You just have to be careful. Just like, you know, the other terms you have to be careful. And I love that about philosophy is, constantly paying attention to terms wanting to be able to drill down and 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 make sure we're using the term correctly and and same way and now if you could go back knowing everything you know now would you go back through all that schooling and do it over again yeah i might pick different schools oh i i I was going through you would still do a phd you would go all the way through yeah. Yeah. Um, and and that's, that's a lot that's of work. It's a lot of suffering. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to say, I, I did uh, develop a minor passion and, and um, um, well-seasoned understanding of the problem of evil uh, and the problem of suffering through my graduate experience. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, I, I would say I'd do it again. But here's the thing. I feel like the the academic calling, while it's kind of a unique application of our intellectual duties as Christians, mm. um, I don't think it's that exceptional. Um, I mm. think wow. Christians have a broad redemptive uh, role in society. And we're not, we don't really have permission from God to say, well, university, just forget about it. Just you focus on doing this. Uh, now, individuals will have different callings. Not everybody should go into academia. I don't, I'm not saying that. Um, but the church, capital C, has a duty to be a redemptive influence across culture. And that especially includes um, the, these uh, gateways of leadership and influence in society that we call the university. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm passionate about academics. But on top of that, 
Uh, the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And unfortunately, in, in today's nomenclature, we tend to treat the mind like it's it's at odds with the heart. Like if I want a strong mind, I'm going to have to starve the heart. Very common. If I want a very common. My heart, I'm going to have to starve the mind. Yeah, very common. It, it's not a zero sum. Those these are both meant to work best together and integrate all them. It, yeah, all of it is is a mode is means for loving God. If you're not yeah. using your mind in in a God honoring way, then that's that's kind of not loving God as you should. Amen. That's that's a wonderful little sermon. I love that. Yeah, that's a great theme. That's a great theme. Loving God with all your heart and my, and mind go together. And I I think it's wonderful. You're a wonderful example of someone who bridges that and shows that they're meant to be integrated. Thank you. And that's just how you. That's just how you are. You're over yeah. there ma- making stuff over at Pella, and you have a PhD, and you've studied all these amazing things and you have all this amazing knowledge and you're, you're a guy, you're just a guy, you're a normal guy. And you're like, let's go watch a movie. Let's, you know, let's listen to some music, (laughs) put together some windows. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. there's, There's a kind of elitism that sometimes gets, that often gets associated with academia and the intellectual life. And I think that yeah. is artificial, that that's mm-hmm. a kind of um, egoism, competition spirit where folks are trying to prove that they're better than. And yeah. for me to be better than means someone else has to be less than. How about instead, we're all trying to love God as comprehensively and, and as con- constantly as possible. Mm. And if we're leaving out whole dimensions of the human experience and say, oh, God doesn't care about that, says who? God said he cares yeah. about it. Why do you think God's wrong about saying he cares about how you use your mind? <clears throat> wow. Yeah. You know, Dallas Willard is famous for saying that Jesus Christ was the smartest man who ever lived. Mm-hmm. And the thing that gets me about that is he was a regular guy. He, he was a carpenter. Fish. There was apparently nothing <laughs> special about him that that he i mean he well let me be clear here i know what you're saying (laughs) he didn't uh when i say apparently i mean to everybody living there before he started his ministry beyond a very small set of people like for example his parents um who knew who he really was yeah uh, obviously he he lived a normal life and you know he didn't have huge crowds around him his family uh before yeah. he started his public ministry and that's why when he started his public ministry a shift occurred it, then mm-hmm. he now he was a public public figure more of a public figure and even then he had a very limited audience he wasn't on the roman empire twitter uh, with uh, followers as far as uh, you know, Spain on the one hand, and maybe England on the other hand, and um, uh, certainly no further than I mean, just miles away from where he lived, and uh, and he he was a normal guy, and he was the smartest man who ever lived, and so mm-hmm. obviously 
he was, I mean, he's the one that said, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Mm. And he was God. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's like, uh, it's, it, what I love about talking to you, John, is you, you seem very much like Christ. I think, I think oh, you, that, you feel that like, is the highest compliment. Thank you. Yeah. You're a man's man and you, you want to be as integrated as possible. So I, I think that any college or seminary should be honored to have you on staff. If you ever want to go so back. Too. Yeah. That would, you should write them a note. <laughs> I will. Well, I'll throw this up on YouTube. And if all the, 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 uh, the political party that runs YouTube and, uh, doesn't take it down because it was too offensive to them, yeah. not to anybody else, but to them and their goals, then, uh, then maybe it will be evident to somebody who yeah. can offer you a well-paying job and, uh, provide well yes. for your, your lovely wife. God's uh, taken care of us. And, and I, I have awesome. come to see in these seasons outside of the academic sphere mm -hmm. um, that, that there's a lot to be learned in the desert. Mm -hmm. You know, there, it's not what you thought you needed to know, um, but it is often those kinds of lessons that you won't learn any other way um, in, in places outside of your comfort zone, outside of where you where, your training, your experience, the places where you're confident and you're skilled, often it's outside of those places that um, you interact with God at a different level because you can't really rely on your competence and your reputation and your expertise. Uh, you have to rely on him because mm. uh, it's hard getting up at four o'clock in the morning to shovel snow for a 5 a.m. job and then rush home after 10 hours and go to bed. I mean, and <laughs> I even laugh at myself because I'm complaining because of these first world problems. And I, I think about a generation ago, there are folks that, that would, would love to have that. And, you know, same yeah. kinds of folks that built their own log cabin with their bare hands and, and laughed at the weather and yeah. <laughs> tried to raise their kids up to be hardier and more capable. And I'm here whining. See, it's I'm all relative, John. It's all, you see, you just proved yeah. how it's truth is relative. You just proved it. Just kidding. I'm kidding. Thing like that. Do you have coffee in the morning? Oh yeah. So you got that yeah. coffee while you're doing the shoveling. Do you guys have snow right now? Not right now, but we're close. It, it it was like 70 degrees earlier this week, midday. And just yesterday, it started to drop down close to freezing. And I think right now it's below freezing, but we'll routinely Whoa. get get a couple. Oh we'll, we'll get, I don't know, five or six snows in, in the course of, of the winter. And, and for at least a month there, it'll stay um, below freezing so that when it snows, it stays there. So you have to shovel it out of the way so that when the next snow comes in, uh, it doesn't compact it and freeze it gotcha. even more solid. Okay. There's a whole philosophy of how to handle snow that I had to learn when I moved uh, oh, from yeah. Texas to Pella. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I grew up in Colorado, so I can kind of maybe possibly imagine some of that. Well, I was John, actually born in Denver. Yeah. You were born in Denver? Mm -hmm. And I spent some time in Estes Park and, and Aspen. I love Colorado. Um, yeah, I do too. I miss it. I don't miss the 
I miss how it used to be. I don't miss how it is now. I'm probably the same way. Yeah. Well, Dr. John Ferrer, thank you for your time today. You, I loved just hanging out with you and having a conversation. Yeah, you're one cool dude. Well, thank you. I got this sweater on, so I'm trying to keep warm. <laughs> okay, take care, John. Take care. Thank